the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Alive, you say, huh? Wait a minute, let me check here. Yep, we got a pulse. Okay, good news. (laughs) Very funny. Thank you, sir. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Lifeline for the 20th of... December. How you doing so far? Five days short of Christmas here. Speaking of Christmas, um, we're going to kind of wipe the slate clean of all the conversation on Christmas Day and present two solid hours of Christmas music to accompany your uh, your celebration on Monday, December the 25th from 5 until 7 p.m. We are once again very pleased and proud to present St. Olaf Christian uh, Christmas Festival Concert featuring the St. Olaf Orchestra and Choir. Yes, St. Olaf is a real place for those of you that remember um, the Golden Girls. Anyway, that'll be coming up on Christmas Day, the 25th, 5 to 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. And speaking of Christmas... My goodness, as we head into the final weekend, lots of exciting things going on. No doubt you're catching up on your last-minute Christmas shopping. And speaking of Christmas celebrations, there is a huge one in store in just a couple of days that's going to be taking place. It is the annual Bay Area Rescue Mission Children's Christmas Celebration. And joining me now with details is the Executive Director of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, Reverend John Anderson. John, is always good to speak with you. You must feel like it's Santa's workshop these days with all the busyness and last-minute preparations. How many, how many gifts all told have got to be wrapped and ready to go for Friday? Goodness gracious, we, uh, we are, you know, it's a shame we can't charge for wrapping presents. <laughs> uh, Macy's, I don't know that they do it anymore. Maybe maybe you can uh, become a competition of Macy's. <laughs> I, I would think that we would have the experience. We are wrapping in the neighborhood of 4,500 presents for boys and girls. Now, let me ask you, let me ask you a question, because I, I know of other organizations. I was watching news about one down in the South Bay, and they're doing a children's thing, too. And with great pride, they showed this huge room with all these toys. Not a one of them was Christmas gift-wrapped. Why go through the extra effort of wrapping so many toys for these needy kids? You know, for me, it just—I can't help but look at the wrapped Christmas presents, the bows and everything— and somehow it just kind of reminds me of baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. We're expecting 2,000 homeless and desperately needy children at this event Friday, beginning at 11 a.m. And for the children that attend our Christmas celebration, and it's really all about sharing the gospel, even more than the toys, uh, it's the only Christmas they'll have. You know, it's not like they're going to Aunt Sue's or, or Uncle Barney's or uh, or even their mom and dad's will be able to provide Christmas presents for them. So to 
hand a oh, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old uh, child a present that's not wrapped, well, it just takes away part of that element of the ambiance of Christmas. And uh, so that's why we go the extra mile. We wrap these presents for the kids. Uh, we have hundreds of volunteers that have been at the rescue mission yesterday, today. They'll be back tomorrow making sure that all the presents are wrapped and they're separated by age, gender, and, and all that stuff. And at the conclusion of our Gospel Christmas program, uh, each kid's going to walk away with two or three uh, wrapped Christmas presents. In addition, though, Craig, we have received about 125 bicycles from Parker Hannison, a manufacturing company here in Richmond, another 165 bicycles from a private foundation down in San Jose called Turning Wheels for Kids, and we're going to be giving away bicycles to a number of those children on Friday, as well as the kids that are living at the rescue mission with a homeless uh, mom or dad. Wow. And, you know, it sounds like then the whole process of wrapping, and I can't even imagine um, the amount of wrapping paper and tape that you go through to wrap 4,000 gifts. I, I stutter at the idea of sometimes of wrapping, you know, five or ten. So that said, it sounds like the true wrapping that's taking place here, beyond just the, the decoration, the decorative portion of it, is these, these gifts are wrapped in love. The whole event, in, in every respect, is wrapped in love. Because so many of these kids, as you point out, have gone through a difficult year. Maybe there's been a loss of a job within the family that led to a mortgage being foreclosed upon. Maybe a landlord just raised the rent so sky high that the family could no longer afford it. Maybe there's been some illness or um, other issues going on where mom or dad left the home and now a single parent is struggling to get by. And so the notion of being able to go out and spend money on Christmas gifts is just simply not in the equation. Moreover, the added stress of the cost of living in the Bay Area, coupled with increased number of homeless people simply because of things like the recent fires in Northern California, economic challenges in terms of housing in the Bay Area, which we are all, I think, painfully aware of. All of this sort of conspires together, and it makes this a sad, dark time of the year uh, when it should be a happy, joyous year. And so I'm so delighted that the Bay Area Rescue Mission does this annually to bring some joy into the hearts and lives of young children and needy families. Again, expecting upwards of 2,000 children this coming Friday, the 22nd. And uh, we've been kind of putting out the clarion call, John Anderson, for volunteers. How are you uh, staffed for Friday's gathering? Any, any, uh, any continuing needs there? There is. In fact, people can go online at bayarearescue.org, click on the Get Involved Now tab, and sign up to volunteer we need uh, about another 50 volunteers between the hours of 10.30 and 3.30 on Friday to help uh, pull off this event successfully to be involved with the kids to let them know that, uh, you know, our volunteers, the presence there are there. Everything's there because... God loves them and cares for them this much. And last year, you you shared with us when you were in studio last that last year at the 2016 Christmas party for about 18, almost 1,900 children, didn't almost half of them make a decision for Christ? 
almost, you know, when, when you get into those larger numbers, it's hard to get a, a real accurate count. But uh, I, I'm sure that more than 800 of the 1,869 that attended last year's event accepted Jesus as their Wow. Day. So, you know, there's, there's so much significance to this, you know, showing love to hurting families, meeting some of their needs. We've talked about the food boxes that have been provided to needy families once again this year. Over the course of Christmas week, the Bay Area Rescue Mission will provide or directly serve up to 25,000 meals. And as we head into the children's Christmas party this Friday, again, about 50 more volunteers are needed. I thank those of you that have taken the time to say, you know, it's the end of the week and it's holiday shopping and all the last minute busyness heading into Christmas um, early next week and to carve some time out of your schedule to go help somebody else. I know it was difficult. And yet, for those of you that are able to do so, or you've always said, we'd love to do something significant to also um, demonstrate before our kids what it means to give to others that have less than we do uh, or not blessed in the same fashion as we are. Well, here's a great way to do it. If you want to get involved, there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can go online to bayarearescue.org and click on the Get Involved tab, and then you can sign up and volunteer for Friday's event. Again, about 50 additional volunteers are needed that will help everything from serving meals to uh, distributing all of the uh, Christmas gifts and uh, and whatnot. And so you can sign up. Please do so in advance. Don't just show up. They need to be able to <coughs> be prepared to have the proper number of volunteers on hand. So you can do that through the webpage at bayarearescue.org. And then as you're thinking of last-minute holiday giving, uh, particularly as you consider end-of-year giving, uh, would you consider providing some resources? Um, This, as you can imagine, for 4,000 gifts um, is an expensive, time-filled undertaking. And between providing the meals, renting the hall, buying the gifts, wrapping the gifts, even with the ones that are donated, there's still an enormous expense um, to the mission for this. And so your partnership can help make a big difference um, in providing the resources that are necessary. So again, information available on the web. Easiest place to go is kfax.com. You'll see the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of the homepage, and you can securely give your gift online. Bay Area Rescue. And of course, Again, volunteers needed to go to kfax.com and click on the banner at the top of the homepage. That's kfax.com. Our thanks to Reverend John Anderson, the executive director of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, for that update. It's going to be exciting. Wrapping 4,000 Christmas gifts. I can just imagine the piles. I mean, I, I did some wrapping the other night, and the piles of trim and paper and stuff all over the place. 4,000? Ay-yi-yi-yi-yi. Okay, that's translated loosely into ay-yi-yi-yi-yi traffic. Let's see what's going on traffic wise. Brian Dean stands by at 516 with an update on your Wednesday ride home. Brian, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. A recent interesting, if not troubling, editorial appeared in the pages of the Washington Post, which I I love their slogan, democracy dies in darkness. Apparently, occasionally the truth does, too, at least at the Washington Post. This particular editorial written by Charles Matthews, who is professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia, 
and essentially goes on to opine that during this time of year, Christmas season, when um, so often we hear companies force their employees to say happy holidays because they're afraid somebody might be offended by the words Merry Christmas. And of course, there is, I think, a growing sense of disdain for the holidays, certainly within secular circles. The atheists go out of their way to spend money putting up billboards to tell us that the God that they don't believe exists is somebody that they need to tell us that they believe doesn't exist, as if they're so busy fighting things that don't exist. I mean, I don't believe in little green Martians from Mars, and I don't spend much time talking about it or trying to dissuade others from believing in them either. That said, I think it's interesting to note that this particular editorial suggests that what is really troubling Christianity in America today is not necessarily disdain from the left or from secularists or atheists, but rather the biggest problem with Christianity today is Christianity itself. More specifically put, um, there is a sense that white Christianity is in trouble, as if to suggest there's different colors of Christianity, which I think goes to the heart of the the totality of the misunderstanding of the author, author of this particular editorial. So once again, in the name of tolerance, they are engaging in intolerance, and um, it's almost as if to suggest that we're simply falling on our own sword. Let's get some insights to this. We're joined now by Dr. Michael P. Foley. He is an author and theologian. His latest book, by the way, is called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity, Why It's True, Why It Matters, and Why It's Good for You. And Dr. Foley, thanks so much for taking time to be with us this evening. Thank you, Craig. We have heard, certainly, the president say he wants to make it uh, safe once again to say Merry Christmas. We know that, in fact, there have been documented cases when there's been attempts by um, either institutions that would, for example, outlaw the display of a manger scene uh, to companies that say, wish people Merry, uh, Happy Holidays, not Merry Christmas, all of this. There certainly, I think, is, is a sense by Christians in America who have been Christians long enough to remember the old days, so to speak, that there seems to be a, a bit of a tide turning. And while there may be some examples where we're not necessarily our own best enemies, at the end of the day, I don't know, is the criticism that is leveled at the church inside of this particular political article, is it really all that fair or all that accurate? Well, I haven't read the article, but from your summary, it, de- it definitely sounds like a form of race-baiting. And this is a classic leftist move to create problems and then blame the right for it or to be guilty of the very thing they're accusing the other side of doing. I don't, I, I just, I agree with you. I don't think there's such a thing as white Christianity. Well, and, and one of the things I thought was interesting, they, they cite, for example, the recent special election in Alabama and suggests that in spite of all the accusations against Judge Roy Moore and all of these women coming together and making proclamations of his abusive activities, that nevertheless, and I'm quoting from the article here, 80% of white Christians still voted for him. Now, I have to wonder, when that pollster is gathering that information outside of the polling place, how are they defining Christianity? What kind of tools are they using in order to drill down on the accuracy of such a description, either the label that is self-accepted or, um, or self-placed? 
And at the end of the day, as we all know, um, statistics can be skewed in any direction we would like. And the theme, the running theme here seems to suggest that Christians in America are out of touch, that we are somehow um, our own worst enemy. And at the end of the day, what's really wrong with the world is not the rest of the world, but Christians themselves. Well, just so many things going on there. And we can start with the fact that Note the hypocrisy involved in saying, you know, white Christians overwhelmingly voted for this less-than-ideal candidate, this man accused of these scandalous things. Doesn't the left do the same thing? Don't we all? I mean, one of the things about being in a democratic society is that we often have to go to the polls, hold our nose, and pull the lever for the lesser of two evils. There were lots of people who voted for Hillary Clinton that didn't like her but figured she would be better than Donald Trump. They wanted Bernie Sanders, but they held their nose, they voted for Clinton. And I suspect that a lot of Christians in Alabama felt the same way about this Moore man. Well, you know, the other curiosity, too, you, you, you touch on something interesting, Doctor, and, and that is that we, we've seen sort of the hue and cry right now um, coming from many circles that are just shocked and horrified that women are being taken advantage of and being abused in centers of power, the halls of power in Washington, D.C., certainly on the casting couches of Hollywood, as if somehow we're either first discovering this malady, or somehow there's been a change in societal views and what was considered um, inappropriate 20, 30 years ago is now suddenly today considered highly uh, appropriate or vice versa. And, and that said, I find it interesting that the very same people that today are arguing that the women that are accusing these men of these actions need to be heard, and yet 20 years ago, when Bill Clinton was running for office, we were told, ah, these women are just there, they got an axe to grind, they're power hungry, they're making it up, it's all politically based, and we need to ignore them. So which is it? Do they need to be heard now, but not then, or vice versa? Was it wrong then, but okay today? Is it no longer okay, but back then it was? It doesn't make any sense. I think at the end of the day, they really end up tipping their hands, so to speak, as to what the real agenda is behind all their protesting. Well, and it goes even deeper than that. I mean, now we're experiencing this phenomenon of leftists being outraged that fellow leftists would be villains regarding women, and yet it was the left that gave us the sexual revolution, that destroyed the code of chivalry, that taught sexual license, and now they are shocked, shocked, 40 years later, at the harvest that they have reaped. If you've just joined the conversation, we're visiting today with author and theologian Dr. Michael Foley. He's got a new book out called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity, Why It's True, Why It Matters, and Why It's Good for You. Let's take a brief time out. We're going to get you updated on some traffic. When we come back here, I want to have the doctor help us understand another seemingly... um, major conflict, and that is, as we've discussed, as the left is uh, thrilled to vilify and accuse Christianity of all kinds of, of evils, up to and including the notion that it is almost entirely false, and yet, ironically, the same left that would vilify Christianity embraces Islam, all the while claiming that what they really stand for is fairness and parity and protecting of women's rights, things of this sort. What? 
We'll come back to more of the conversation with Dr. Michael Foley, the book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity, as Lifeline continues. Let's get a look at traffic. We've got the latest for you. And Brian Dean takes a look at what's going on out there from the KFAX Traffic Center. Brian? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. With us today is best-selling author and theologian Dr. Michael Foley. His latest book is called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity, Why It's True, Why It Matters, and Why It's Good for You. Let's talk about some of the double standards here, Doctor. One of the big ones, of course, has been this notion that, well, Christianity tends to be very misogynistic. It's anti-women's progress. In fact, Christianity is kind of backwards and caught in the Stone Ages overall. And we see this played out time and time again. What is false in that reasoning? What is false is the fact that a lot of the respect for women that we have in Western civilization is owed to Christianity, and that from the very beginning, Christianity has always affirmed the spiritual equality of the sexes. You see this very clearly in the New Testament. St. Paul, of course, also says that wives are to be subordinate to their husbands, but the Christian idea of subordination is not some form of slavery, but, some, but a form of teamwork. There is simply a division of labor within the family, and that has nothing to do with the inferiority of one sex over another. And, and in fact, Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire in large part because it attracted so many female converts who were tired of the way they were being treated <clears throat> in their pagan religion and w- were drawn to the dignity that Christianity saw in womanhood. And, you know, it's ironic, and I've had this pointed out to me by theologians in the past, that if you look at any of the other major world religions, Islam, Buddhism, pick your choice, you find zero cases where a central foundational figure upon whom, in many respects, the the entire validity and historicity of that religion sits or rides is never a woman. And yet in Christianity, who's the central figure at the very beginning? It's Mary, a woman who is a virgin, who is called upon by very God himself to bring forth and, and bring birth to the very Son of God, and we find the, the, the central figure in his life, not only from the very beginning, but certainly through the totality of his time on earth to be a woman, major women that played big roles throughout Scripture, and yet you find that comparison of the centrality of the role of women uh, existed in few other major world religions except Christianity. No, that's exactly right, and we, we forget, or it's easy to overlook the fact that the Virgin Mary was Christ's first disciple, and that, in a sense, all salvation hung on her saying yes to what was essentially a marriage proposal. When the angel Gabriel announced that the shadow of the Most High would come upon her, she said yes. And in her saying yes, in, in the exact opposite way that Eve had said no to God, Mary's yes brought forth the Messiah. It's interesting that Islam also has an account of Mary giving birth to 
um, to Jesus. But what's fascinating about the account in the Quran is there's absolutely no mention of Mary's consent. Because in Islam, God just does what he wants, and it's almost repugnant to a Muslim mind to have God want human cooperation. And, of course, at the end of the day, Jesus becomes a, a uh, predominant good prophet, but not the very Son of God, and certainly not the sole vehicle through which the means by which mankind might be forgiven and reconciled unto the Father uh, is, is provided. You know, it's interesting because you, you bring up the issue of Islam, and I find it ironic as we talk about everything from the treatment of women, misogyny, etc., etc., progress, everything that the left tends to accuse Christianity of— which is almost entirely false. And they do a good job, though, in this falsehood of vilifying Christians. Meanwhile, these very same accusations of, in this example, misogynistic attitudes, anti-women, anti-progress, etc., etc., are all quite true of Islam, which is something Islam readily admits, and yet the left is defensive of Islam, all the while attacking Christianity. I don't get that. Well, it actually makes sense from a leftist point of view because of one thing. The left sees itself as the world's only champion of the victim, which is an idea that they stole from Christianity. And it's one of the reasons why they are hostile to Christianity, because they are trying to promote a Christian idea without Christianity. They're trying to take over our territory. And... In their mind, Islam is a victim. Islam is a victim of the Crusades. Islam is a victim of Western imperialism. All you have to do is claim victim status, and the left will embrace your cause, even if, as you point out, it is profoundly illiberal. Islam stands for none of the progressive doctrines that the left stands for. But because in the leftist mind, Muslims are victims in the West, they get a free pass. A little bit of point of historical order here. You mentioned the Crusades, and, I, and I've heard apologists for Islam bring that up as well and say, well, you know, the Christians and the Crusades. Well, wait a minute, though. Were not the Crusades basically a response to the violent spread of Islam throughout parts of Europe? That is absolutely true. Within 100 years, Islam conquered two-thirds of Christendom. They conquered all of the Middle East. They conquered all of North Africa. They conquered most of Spain and were pushing into the south of France. And then they were attacking the Byzantine Empire, which was the European West's only Christian ally left. This was an extremely aggressive military foe. And so when the Crusades were called, it wasn't as an act of aggression. It certainly wasn't imperialistic. It was an act of self-defense. And, and what an ironic differentiation between the two calls to action, one that is spread through violence at the point of the sword, saying, turn or God will kill you, and the other that is spread through the death of God's Son on the cross saying, turn, because God loves you so much. What, talk about polar opposite of messages. It's exactly right. 
And not every crusader necessarily did everything they were supposed to or lived up to the Christian ideal. In times of war, men do do bad things. And so there were acts of atrocity committed by Christians in the Crusades. There were also acts of atrocities committed by Muslims during the Crusades. But the key thing is that the Crusades was never called in order to spread Christianity at the point of a sword. It was simply to recover lands that had been unjustly taken by the Muslims. It was not, it was not a form of evangelizing. It was never a form of evangelizing. One of the issues that you discuss inside the pages of your new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity, and I'll mention to listeners you're thinking about some last-minute holiday gift ideas, this might be a great one to add to your shopping list. You can get it online. You can order it, uh, in fact, through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, Bay Area bookstores have it as well. Again, that's The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity. One of the things, Dr. Foley, that you address at some length is this notion that somehow Christianity is an enemy of science. And we know that that is an assertion that is becoming more and more difficult to make, particularly as more in the scientific community that have been confronted with questions regarding the origin of man, uh, intelligent design, things of this sort, and are finally having to conclude that, yeah, there seems to be the hand of somebody. They may not identify it as God in the same fashion we would, but at least they are beginning to identify that there had to be some greater intelligent being behind all of this process. Otherwise, it certainly just couldn't create all of this, from the Big Bang Theory, um, uh, organization out of chaos. Speak to that, if you would, please. Well, you're absolutely right that the more you study order, the more you begin to wonder, isn't there an orderer behind the order? How could these things have just simply come about randomly? And, you know, in basic science, I've always wondered this, suggests, well, the Big Bang happened, and out of that came all of this wonderful order and mankind and evolution and the planets and flowers and all of it. And I think to myself, you know, the last time I saw somebody detonate TNT on television... They didn't blow up a building and create another building. It didn't blow up a building and become an automobile. It just became a pile of rubble. So it never made sense to me in the first place. Well, and and for that matter, the Big Bang Theory was first uh, devised by a faithful Catholic priest. He did not see this as some proof of atheism. Quite the contrary. He saw this as the beginning of God's order. So... The relationship between Christianity and science is actually a very long and deep and profound one. That, as a matter of fact, there would be no modern science were it not for Christianity. It was the Christian Middle Ages that laid the foundations for modern science in the first place by giving Western man a a certain faith in reason, that we are made in the image and likeness of God, And this gives us a capacity to discover a rational and intelligible order created by an intelligent God. If you don't believe that reality is reliable or that the mind is reliable, you can't do science. This new book, as we've mentioned, is is wonderful both in terms of better arming the reader with um, solid evidence, you know, with Scripture exhorts us to be ready to give an answer that, for the hope that lies within, to have a better apologia 
um, a better foundation for Christian apologetics and to be able to, in a loving fashion, engage in conversation with friends and family and coworkers and others. So when these issues come up and these claims are made, falsely so, that you can be able to essentially help set the record straight. The book is called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Christianity, Why It's True, Why It Matters, and Why It's Good for You. The book, by the way, as we mentioned, is published by Regnery Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com or online at Regnery.com. And our thanks to author Dr. Michael Foley for being with us tonight. Dr. Foley, hope you get you uh, back on another edition of the program, maybe after the year, uh, first of the year, we can go a little bit deeper on this topic. Thanks again for your time, Dr. Michael Foley. All right, we're at 15 away from the hour. Let's get caught up in some traffic here. The latest for you with uh, Brian Dean in the KFAX Traffic Center. Brian? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Now, let's get down to a story. This is a story of an anonymous young lady, but it could, in fact, be just about any young lady. Her name is Maricela. She was bullied all the way from the first to the fifth grade. She's currently in 11th grade at the age of 17. But the scars from all of those years of being a victim of bullying are still there. She writes... I was very quiet and shy kind of kid, so I guess that made me an easy target, and I was treated pretty much like dirt. I should mention that my dad passed away when I was six years old, and I was bullied for that as well. When I got a little bit older, I became depressed a lot, never really understood why. By the time I was 15, I became so depressed that I considered and attempted suicide. That story, of course, is becoming more and more common, and the news of late seems to be filled with terrible stories related to bullying. I guess the big compelling question tonight is, is society becoming meaner? Are kids nastier today than back in the day? Or have we just become so thin-skinned that even the slightest slight is considered an insult? And what of this topic of bullying, to the point of even kids considering suicide? Has bullying become so prevalent or severe or do we need to give a second look at the, how we respond to the case of bullying? Joining me now is Brooks Gibbs, National Social Skills Educator. He is a best-selling author. His book, Love is Greater Than Hate. He's a pastor, mentor, husband, father of two boys, and joins us now. And Brooks, is always great to have you on the program. Thanks, Craig. What of this matter? Um, certainly I recall bullies on campus when I was a kid. I will admit that I was a victim of a bully or two. Um, I never quite entirely fit in, probably my stunning good looks. <laughs> but I have to wonder, when we hear how prevalent bullying seems to be on campuses all across America and the severity of it, are, are we getting better reporting at this? Are we becoming thin-skinned? Or are the means and methodology of bullying, like the utilization of, of things like Facebook and the Internet, becoming so prevalent that it's just a lot easier for kids to pick on other kids? Uh, you know, bullying is sort of a new, newer term over the last century, but the human nature of being a jerk, a punk, a meanie, hurting feelings of others, you know, that's been around for millennia. Um, there's been absolutely no change in human nature, um, and the human nature is showing itself online, which is making it more prevalent. I think all of us can feel it in this culture. I think uh, 50 years ago, anger was a uh, really considered a vice. Uh, meanness was only to be brought out 
in the most critical circumstances where it called for it, when you had to right a wrong or speak out against an injustice. But now anger and meanness has become a somewhat of a virtue in this nation. Uh, the more venomous your words, the more viral it becomes. So I think our moral compass in this nation has absolutely changed, uh, but the human nature has uh, been the same. In fact, Aristotle, 2,400 years ago, realized because of the venomous words of society, he says, you know, one thing government can never do is make its people moral. And uh, I think that's what we're trying to do with our legal approach to cracking down on bullying. We're trying to take, you know, make kids moral through character education or threatening them with punishments. And uh, Aristotle says it's not going to work. People are just going to be mean. So, yes, the best thing to do Let's toughen up our skin and let's make sure that we're kind no matter how people treat us. Now, we add in a second later into this thing from the Christian perspective. I mean, we, we were exhorted, um, even by Christ himself, that we as Christians, as believers, as disciples, that we would be despised for his namesake. So persecution, maybe another word for bullying, certainly very normative from a biblical perspective, certainly nothing that should come as a surprise to us. And so a big part of this, as you point out, is is simply man's fallen sin condition. But I have to wonder, Brooks, in terms of, of your observation, and, and for the benefit of listeners, you have spoken and, and, and performed or, or appeared, rather, at rallies all across the country, junior high, high school level, middle school level, um, addressing this issue. You've had a chance to kind of serve as sort of a a sociologist, in a sense, of observing this kind of behavior, and, and not just the behavior, but our communities and society's response to same. And I'm wondering if part of this issue isn't the fact that maybe we're becoming a little bit hypersensitive here, uh, that we, we are working hard to try and shut down the bullies, yet as you aptly point out, the bullies have always been with us, probably in one form or another always will be. So are we failing our kids here and perhaps not giving them all the tools necessary to grow the so-called thicker skin, to be better prepared, to be despised for his namesake? You know, I I think so. I think we're uh, not communicating a complete message about words. We're only communicating a one-sided message. The vast majority of schools, and I've worked with over 1,500 schools, I've spoken to over 2 million students face-to-face, and uh, the vast majority of those schools have never even heard a message of resilience. They've only heard the message that words wound. And, you know, Craig, let me ask you, if you hear every day and certainly every week and, and you have posters all over your school that words wound, words hurt, words kill, words scar forever, you know, what is that going to do to you next time someone says a mean word? Uh, it, it seems to me that people, you know, the, the truth about words is, yes, they can hurt, but they don't have to. And, and words only have the power that I give them. So if someone's mean to me, I'm the one that decides whether I'm going to be upset or not. And that's the complete message of words that we need to communicate. In 1850, they called it, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And, and people say that's a lie, but if they study the root of that old American colloquialism, they discover now, the African-American slaves came up with that phrase to teach their children not to let racism wound them emotionally. They can't help but a stick and a stone beating them, but a word, they have complete control whether that's going to penetrate their heart or not. That's a complete message about words. 
A lot of it really comes down to a matter of our perspective on this, our response to this. And, and let's face it, you know, there's a degree to which we can try to educate kids to be kinder to each other and to not be so mean, not be so nasty, uh, be less inclined to harness the power of technology to bully. And yet we know by their very nature, their innates in nature, they're going to do it anyway. So maybe the better approach ought to be to better prepare our children to better handle it. it, it it's like... The notion we've got a lot of rain going on here in Northern California uh, over the last several days. And so we could say, well, uh, we've got all this rain coming, so we should uh, just talk about how the rain is going to bury people underwater and how that's going to destroy homes. Well, you could certainly do that, and you would we would be very appropriate and correct in sharing those observations or, or engaging in conversation about that. But are you going to change anything? Or would it be smart to make your home as flood-resistant as possible? Maybe this is a case where we need to, as much as we try to, during a rainy season, make our homes flood-resistant, that we need to make our kids more bully-resistant. We're going to talk about that when we come back after a brief time. I'm out. If you've just joined us, Rooks Gibbs on the program today. We're opening up the phone lines. Parents listening, maybe you've got uh, yourself in an absolute knot in trying to deal with a bullying situation with one of your students, one of your children, and uh, you're contemplating going to the school authorities or you're trying to broker the peace between uh, your son or daughter and a a playmate and uh, you're trying to involve the other parents and you just don't know what to do, you're looking for answers, solutions, how can you help your kids better deal with the issue of bullying? As a parent, you probably know. If your child has been a victim or a target of bullying, or maybe you have suspicions, but you're you're not quite sure how to clarify all of this. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 